0: I didn't, I didn't want to use the microphone either, but since Ruth did it, I guess I will as well. Defiance Troy Church is known for being the church of level ground and how you live your spiritual life, but not outside with the microphones. And the, it's a very nerdy joke. Half half dad joke, half pastor joke. Um, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You didn't miss much. I'll just hold it, even... The thing I tell people, I went to a conference once where I was sharing about what we do as a church and they were like, are you okay holding the mic? And I was like, then I tell too many jokes and it doesn't go well. And so they put a mic stand up there for me, but today we're talking about Leviticus. So I think we'll be okay. Um, For those of you who don't know, we're walking through the book of Leviticus this summer um, and we've done sort of the first two, three offerings that were all voluntary offerings recently. And so this Sunday we're going to look at this next set of offerings that that occur in chapters four, five, and six. And instead of us making us read that whole long, I had Ruth uh, read the last offering for us, But, but we're sort of going to be making observations on sort of the offerings that are offered in chapter four, chapter five, and chapter six. One of the interesting things about the start of the book of Leviticus is that those first three offerings, they first say if any person, if any man, if any human wants to make these offerings, is sort of the way that they are introduced. And in those offerings, there is no sort of sense of guilt or um, sin or anything else. They seem to be almost joy offerings. The offering we talked about last week, which is is called the peace offering or the well-being offering, depending on your Bible, actually has this way of saying that like resting in the goodness of who God is. The offering is there so that you can sort of um, share something with God and rest and eat and enjoy in that which I think is an amazing thing in the book of Leviticus is that it first starts with this sense of gratitude before it goes to this place of, of sin offerings. It says that sort of your first act with this God, particularly if, is, if you've been following us, we've been walking through the, the books of the Torah each summer, Genesis and Exodus. If you wanted to say the first summer the offering that is about the good creation of God that we've spoiled and God's plan to reclaim it. And then Exodus is this story about rescue and God's presence that he wants to be with his people. And so your first reaction to that isn't, boy, did I mess up. Your first reaction to that is gratitude for the ways in which God has saved you, placed you in good creation, and given you new life. So the book of Leviticus begins with those three sort of positive offerings. But this Sunday it begins to move towards these peace and well-being offerings. This is going to be a losing fight, Don. Um, and so we've been sort of living with the Book of Leviticus for a while. So much so, this this week. Uh, now we're now we're now we're in Exodus. There we go. Maybe we didn't want to be in Leviticus. Uh, all right. I've been living with the Book of Exodus so much that I was, or Leviticus so much, I was sitting with some people this week. And I volunteered at a non-for-profit, or not a non-for-profit, a business in the valley to, to break apricots and take pits out of them. And I must have pitted, I don't know, 5,000 apricots over four hours. Maybe that's a high estimate. I don't know how many I did. But I pitted them all and then and sort of placed them in a bin. And, and uh, that's what I did all day. And I'm either the worst person or the best person to, to do this with. Because there's two other people there and I'm asking them questions about their life and trying to get to know them. And they're like, well, what do you do? How are you here on a Friday doing this? And I'm like, well, I'm a a pastor. My day off is Friday. And I told them, you know, funny enough, right now we're going through the book of Leviticus. And I could tell you how each step of this is like every single one of the offerings we've talked about so far. And the guy is a little bit eccentric. And he's like, well, do it. And so I was like, okay, well, first you lay your hand on the apricot. <laughs> and as you lay your hand on the apricot, then you, then you release its life by breaking it open. And then you take a little bit of the juice and sprinkle it around the altar. And then after that, depending on the type of offering it is, you either burn the whole apricot, or you give some to the priest to eat, or you do something else. And they looked at me like, is this guy for real? Like, does he actually, actually do this? Um... And so it was a great chance to sort of live, and we'll get back to that conversation a little bit later, but like, to sort of sit with this as it takes over your life, to see, like, oh, if I were going to offer a joy offering to the Lord with apricots today, I know exactly how to do it. Um, Now, as Christians, we say that these things are sort of still meaningful, but the pattern of them changes after Jesus. So we still offer sacrifices back to God. We still give joy back to God, but the pattern by which that goes is different than sprinkle some apricot juice around the altar. Um, You you sort of uh, rest in God a little bit differently. But needless to say, Leviticus has already begun to creep into my life. And this Sunday, we're sort of looking at two different offerings that that occur in different ways. One is the purification offering, and one is the reparation offering. The the purification offering sort of goes verses 4, chapters 4 and half of 5, and then the guilt offering or reparation offering goes chapters 5, half of 5, and that first part of 6 that Ruth read for us. But the purification offering we'll talk about for just a second is, the purification offering is this, if you sin unintentionally. Now, ancient Near Eastern cultures don't have the same sort of idea of what intent means as we do. So you could translate that word, you know, if we sin mistakenly, if we sin in error, that this is the way you're going to resolve it. And and the weird part about it is it first starts with the priest. Now, it would be ideal that the priest would know sins, so he probably doesn't sin, uh, what's the word that, that our translations use, sorry, um, Unintentionally, he probably sins mistakenly. He sins in error. Uh, yours says unfaithful. Unfaithfully. Yeah. Unfaithfully. There's lots of different ways, but some of us are like, how do you sin unwittingly? Well, as we get through the rest of the book of Leviticus, you'll find out there's many ways to sin unwittingly. But uh, but at this point, you know, it's an idea of that sort of like you sin um, in a way that you want forgiveness from God. And it starts with the priest, and the priest offers sort of the largest sacrifice of this group of people. And it goes from sort of priest to community, to king, to ordinary person. And it corresponds to sort of what they're supposed to give. The priest, when he sins, is supposed to give the largest gift, and the ordinary person gets off easy with the smallest gift. And I think there's a reason for this, is that this sort of saying that there's... There's this idea that the priest stands as sort of the spiritual picture for Israel. And when he sins near the altar, that, that corrupts or pollutes the altar more than anything else. And then when the king does it, that corrupts and pollutes a lot of people when a leader does that. When the community does it, obviously that was second, sorry. There's a lot of people involved in that. And then when an ordinary individual does it, it's not quite as big of a deal. And so when the priest sins, it says that he's supposed to bring the blood in to the to the tabernacle and sprinkle it seven times on sort of the sheet that separates the the one part that is holy from the holy of holies the more holy part he's supposed to do it seven times and people talk about how those seven times sort of represent almost a recreation seven days of creation seven days of sort of seven sprinkles of sort of saying that we want to get back to that very good world that God created It's what happens when the priest sins and goes in. And it sort of moves from different points after that. And the lowest one sort of being sprinkled on the four points of the altar, which is in some sense purifying the whole altar by touching the four points of it, moving to the four parts of it. And so this offering sort of has this notion in which there is something going on that's that's sort of defaming God's presence in this sphere. One of the things that I think about is that we have lots of metaphors for sin. Now most of us, or if you grew up in the church, the most likely thing you heard about sin is sin means missing the mark, right? Uh, Sin means missing the mark is sort of like a direct alliteration of what the word is. But I joke sometimes with people is just because you know how a word means doesn't mean you know how a word functions. One of, one of these instances, and may, many of you may not be familiar with this word, is, is a phrase that young people use, the hip kids use, not anymore, they did for a little period of time, was YOLO, which means you only live once. Uh, YOLO, you only live once, yes. And so like, well, okay, so if you know the definition of YOLO means you only live once, then you know how the word functions, right? Not exactly, because if somebody were to say to you, you know, oh, you know, I'm really struggling right now. My dog died. And you were to say, YOLO. Um, you, would be, you would understand how the word functions, um, but you wouldn't be using the word, or you'd be understand what the word means. Yes, their dog only lives once, and it would be a very sad response to somebody dealing with something like that. Um, but you wouldn't quite understand how the word functions. And so I think as Christians, if we always are saying sin means misses the mark, I think we know what the word means, but we don't always understand how the word functions. Because what's happening then in this part of the book of Leviticus, it seems almost like sins are pollution. Sins like create something in the air that makes it so that God's presence that's residing with these people needs to be cleaned again. It needs to be renewed. It needs to be remade. And so if we just keep saying sin means misses the mark, it becomes weird. Why does this happen? And not only that, if sin means misses the mark, and we na- normally apply that to ourselves, then it would make more sense that with the blood of the animal would get smeared over you when you offer your sacrifice. Because you wouldn't need to purify the temple, you would need to purify yourself. But what actually happens is, is that when the blood comes out, it's brought to the Holy of Holies, which means to say that in this camp, in this culture of people that are called to sort of mirror God's presence to the world, which happened? What they agreed to at the Book of Exodus at the end of the Book of Exodus is kind of that—to be a royal priesthood, to be His people. Their sin isn't so much just a problem for them; it's a problem for the ways in which they're going to reveal this God to the nations. It's a problem for the way that this God is going to be with them. And so, if we think of sin as missing the mark, we would be more covering ourselves in blood. But what it actually is that sin in, the, in this camp, in this period of time in Israel's history, tends to create this pollutive atmosphere that every now and then it needs to be cleaned up so that God's presence can reside there. And not only that, it, there's a day, and we'll get to this in the book of Leviticus, where it's sort of all reset, because you can't continually always be cleaning it up. God will, God will deal with a certain part of, of pollution, but but there's one day where it's sort of all brought in. Even sins that were committed uh, willingly are brought in, and those are cast out as well. So these are two observations we'll get back to as we finish this sermon. Um, and so sin has this point of, 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 of pollution and collaboration. And so the blood is brought in, and uh, the community one introduces this great phrase, atonement and forgiveness. There's this thing that if you grew up in certain cultures is that like you really get anxious about sin and really I think the biblical way of thinking about sin is it's God's will to forgive it and release you from it and I think that that people who grew up in cultures that have this like sin should always be hanging over you and you should be worried and anxious about it forget this pattern that exists in the bible which is forgiven 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 I and mean, you'll hear it at the end of each of these long... If you make it through the long descriptions of the offerings, at the end it says, and then you will be forgiven. And then you will be forgiven. That part of this is about forgiveness. That, and it's, it's also partially about belonging to God. You see, because it said, if any man, any person on the gratitude offerings, but it says, if any Israelite, sort of in these second offerings... See, sin is kind of a language for inside the community. We, we, we went through this period of, of church history at times where we're like, oh, the world is out there sinning. And it's like, well, they really, it's not sin to them because they don't know any better. Like the church, the Christians, the community of God has this language of sin. But if it's just somebody down your block, it's not quite sin because they don't know what God has done for them. Paul will use this sort of logic in, in his writings too, is that like, it, it's let the world keep going. Like, they'll do their own things. And there's even this New Testament logic that the, that the best cure for a sinful life is a sinful life, because it is eventually leads to emptiness and unfulfillment anyways. It leads to sort of this way in which you can't fulfill those longings. And so we have this sort of way in which this is Israelite language. And one other point about this offering is the priest's offering, and I think the communities as well, the whole carcass of the animal is brought outside the camp and burnt up. So this offering, and particularly with the priest one, this is the, this is the nicest thing of the ones here. After it's slaughtered, the whole thing is brought outside the camp. And so if you think about these people as proximity to the Holy of Holies, priest, community, king, person... It's almost saying that the closer you are to who God is, when you sacrifice something, there's no place else to do with it as it becomes your sin other than take it outside the camp and burn it to ash. When something burned on the altar, it goes up as a fragrant offering to the Lord. But with sin, it's not the same thing. With sin, it's almost like it becomes something that needs to be brought out and extinguished. It needs to be vaporized. And so it's brought outside the camp and burned to ashes. Nobody can eat it. Which gives you a serious attitude about what sin is. The second is with these categories too. It also says that nobody's free from this. It's not just priests, it's not just kings, it's not just community, but that individuals, all people are sort of caught up in this web. That sin isn't just something that that only uh, rich people or poor people or this can commit. And I think this is, as I was thinking about this week, I think it's an interesting point for sort of our social justice conversations at the moment is we often place the victim in the category of not having any possibility of sin at all as a group. And I always think that's quite a bit of a mistake. Because what the Bible says is that even if you're in power or if you're not in power, whether you are in charge or the one doing this, all of us have the propensity to still do sin, to create bad things, to lie and disrupt God in the world. It's an important thing to keep in mind as we seek to restore justice, is that in some ways there is no 100% innocent party. That there's something going on there. The second offering, and, and the second offering, there's a second offering in the first offering, the purification offering. And it's great because it goes all the way down to grain if you can't even afford two birds. Like we've talked about this already, but that there's this ways in which this this part of the Bible is about providing a way for everybody to have their sin forgiven you can't afford two birds, then take some flour and dump it on the altar, and that too will be burned up in forgiveness for what you've done. And it should be noted that like in ancient Near East culture, that there's this idea that the demonic is what what distorts God's presence in the world, and so if you were a member of a rival tribe of Israel, you would have all these incantations to sort of protect it. But what the first century Jews, or sorry, the ancient Near Eastern Jews do is they say that actually a lot of that God exists, and because God exists, that God has no real threats. But the threat to God that exists is the people he's chosen to reside with. And so it's not like there's something out there that's going to corrupt the altar, it's sort of you. And there's this quote, yeah. <laughs> Um, There's this quote from, from Alexander Solzhenitsyn that we've used a couple times, but he says that, you know, it's easy to want to rid the world of evil, but that the line between good and evil runs down every heart. And who wants to cut out part of their heart? That to really want to rid the world of evil, you have to be willing to offer and sacrifice yourself as well. There is no just purely evil sphere that we cannot reside in. Sin resides within the camp is sort of the point here. And we get to the reparation offering or the um, guilt offering that that Ruth read just the last portion of. And there's two ways it works. There's the breach of the holy things of the Lord. You can read commentaries on Leviticus for a long time and find out that nobody really knows what they're referring to. Um, And then there's the breach of other people. Now, the breach of the holy things of the Lord, the best answer that seemed to get people get to is that it's in some sense using God's presence. You're using God in some way or part of the temple or part of God's life with you. You're using it in some way. And as that is holy, you've made a breach of faith against it. You've disrupted what God has given us. And so you make an offering for that, but not only with both of these in the, in the purification or or in the reparation offering or the guilt offering, you actually give an offering back which is to say, if you're going to rob from other people, if you're going to rob from God, you don't just give something in the same unintentional or the, the, the first offering. You actually pay something back in this one. That there's a part of repairing the relationship. It's not just offering something, but it's paying a little bit back. This is where sin, instead of being uh, pollution or missing the mark, functions as debt. Sin brings us into debt to the one who gave us all. Now, as, as, as Christians, this should remind us of the prayer in which we say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That, that in some sense, sin resembles a lack within us. It's a, it's a pulling out of us. And so in this offering, very similar to all the other ones, um, there's this making right with other people, and almost so much so that you make right with um, uh your offender, the person you robbed from, before you make right with God. It's almost as if... Sorry. I normally don't anticipate it being this windy. Um, (laughs) It's almost as if um, you need to make right with the person who you've done wrong to before you can go and make right with God. And in the second part of offerings, there's these prayers... There's these times where there's confession, um, public confession, and the reason they think that that exists is to talk about if this means sins committed in error. What happens if you committed, knowing that you committed a sin, knowing it was a sin? And what people say is is that confession, confessing what you've done is wrong, will actually take your intentional sin. And make it into an unintentional sin, because it gives you the ability to name that that was an error. It gives you ability to say that that was wrong. It gives you ability to name the offense, and sort of by naming the offense, you're freed from having done it intentionally. It's an odd, an odd switch there, but it, it provides the space for grace that wouldn't be there otherwise. Is to have this time to confess our sin so as we have in our service today we'll confess our sin as well so what are the last things I would like to say about this before my notes just completely blow away the first is, is, is this phrase from origin which we've talked about and I finally found it is almost every victim that is offered in Leviticus partakes of some aspect of the image of Christ for him for, him, for in him every sacrifice is retold or redone That all these stories, every sacrifice origin says, in some sense points to Christ. So whether it's the burnt offering, the cereal offering, the purification offering, the reparation offering, all of them point to the way in which Christ is the sacrifice for us. As I told you, if if this sermon series is going to get long, and they're like, how is Matt going to turn this into Jesus this Sunday? But I think it's wise because the book of Hebrews gives us this image that Christ is the fulfillment of all these things. Whereas we talked about last week from the book of Matthew, Jesus says that he's come to fulfill all the law. And that not one uh, cross of the T or dot of the I will be abolished, but that he brings the fulfillment of it. And so in this offering, we have sort of two things that I just sort of want to end with. One is um, pitting, pitting apricots. Yeah, we're back to that. Um, I asked them, this is where it gets like, I'm obviously the worst person to pit apricots with because I then asked them, I said, you know, this Sunday I've got the guilt offerings and I just would be interested, and I don't know how I asked this because it doesn't sound as bad as when I said Maybe it was. (laughs) as I said, what do you guys think about guilt? Like, what makes you feel guilty? And, and like, does guilt ever come up in your lives and this? And they both looked at me like, idiot. Why, (laughs) why... Um, why would you force us to talk about this? We, we're getting, they were, I was a volunteer, they were getting paid $10 an hour, so they had bargained more than they were, they were getting. But the guy, who again, I said was a little bit more eccentric than the girl, he was like, oh man, I just pushed that dark stuff down. I don't even want to talk about it. I don't even want to think about it. I just try to leave it there. And, awesome. Um Yeah, which, was, which is both fascinating because there's no reason why anybody should admit to feeling guilt and not only that, to know it's just such a powerful thing that I need to force it down. I need to hide it. I need to try to distinguish it. And yet, here he is admitting that, and, and the girl sort of nods her head, and it's like, that's, that's more or less how I deal with it as well. And what I think, when we look at the book of Leviticus, is that these offerings, when you really read them and sit with them, they're not meant to induce guilt, they're meant to relieve guilt like this existential thing that he named, I just pushed that way deep down. These offerings are meant to give relief to that guilt, to give you a place so that that doesn't go deeper and deeper in yourself and turn darker and something you protect and guard and can't even release when it comes to it. It actually gives you a place to lay these things bare and to move on with your life. They're not meant to induce you into paralyzing guilt. Brené Brown, who's a thinker that somebody might be familiar with, also says that guilt is the ability to say, I'm sorry, whereas shame is the ability to say that I'm a sorry thing, that I exist as something bad. Whereas guilt actually enables you to say, you know, I made a mistake. And I think that's another thing that these offerings enable for us, is this chance to sort of open up our lives and to say, I made mistakes, rather than I am a mistake, and this freedom comes to us. And, 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 the, and this bridge between guilt and gratitude is actually, because gratitude which those first three offerings, is actually how healthy lives are lives, lived, according to psychologists. To try and live your life with no guilt is actually going to paralyze you. Gratitude is a sign of health so what the book of Leviticus does right off the, spat, the start is makes a place for us to live in this place of guilt and gratitude, knowing what's needed from us and knowing how to give thanks for where we are. Sometimes I think these seem like small things, but if you think about the own patterns in your own life, to be able to be forgiven and to be able to celebrate are two very huge poles for all of us as human beings, to be able to have a place to offer gratitude for what we are and to be able to give Um, to give up our guilt back to God. And so those two things, that that thing is is one of the endpoints. The second endpoint, it comes from the book of John, and it says that Jesus made a tabernacle among us in the first chapter, which is totally strange, because if you think about sin as pollution in the book of Leviticus and people always needing to go and offer and clean the temple so that, so that God can reside in their midst. What happens is when Jesus becomes human among us, the image John uses in the Greek is like Jesus becomes a tabernacle among us. Jesus moves into the world of sin and death and life as God and then and, and spreads and this is not meant spreads cleanliness if, if, if so much of the book of Leviticus is worried about becoming unclean and unclean cleanliness is associated with death what happens when God takes up residency and begins to move in the world is that he spreads life instead of death he repairs broken creation but it shouldn't come a surprise to us that living that way actually spreads his blood as well that he becomes a sacrifice for us. The book of Isaiah says that Jesus, and, and we maybe miss this when we get to Isaiah 53 sometimes, that Jesus became a guilt offering for us. Jesus became the repairing of this relationship with God for us. And so he takes residency up in the world. He takes residency up to sort of move into the temple himself and to be the blood that sort of repairs it all God tabernacles in Jesus Christ and repairs the relationship with us so let us pray